This episode is brought to you by Peacock, presenting critically acclaimed originals for your Emmy consideration. I went over to his house. I read it. I don't want to complain, but it's on (laughs) red paper printed in black, which is kind of difficult. And a bit unnerving as well. Yeah, it's that thing. You read the script. It's written in the first person. You're transported, and it's a journey to read it. And then at the end of that, the guy who wrote the script you just read is asking you if you want to do it. It's kind of like being hypnotized. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Awardist, where we are chatting with the actors, creators, and more this year and breaking down the state of the 2024 Oscars race. I'm Entertainment Weekly Executive Editor Jared Hall, and I'm super excited to be welcoming back to the podcast with me this week. He's not been on here since the Emmy season. It's Editor-in-Chief Patrick Gomez. Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm ready to talk movies. Uh, honestly, right? It's it's we just keep rolling from one uh, award season to the next. Um, I do want to note Joey Nolfi. He's been sick the past few days. His voice isn't quite up to par just yet for a long conversation about today's long movie. Which one? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There are a few this season. But yeah, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Fun fact, uh, Joey, um, which we touched on very briefly last week, he did not like Oppenheimer. Uh, and to be quite honest, that's really why he's not here. I'm kidding. We would never do that. We would never. Um, stack the opinions that way. But um, it is only fitting, I think, that we revisit Oppenheimer this week since Barbie was our previous episode. So we're just going to keep the Barbenheimer train rolling. Um, Patrick, obviously, we know from all of the coverage we did this year how big this movie was. Uh, So let me run through some of the stats really quickly. Oppenheimer, like Barbie, opened July 21st. It earned $82 million in its opening weekend. The movie to date has banked $939 million globally, 616 of that from North America. That makes it Christopher Nolan's third biggest movie worldwide behind The Dark Knight Rises in first and The Dark Knight in second. Um, It also has set a strange but kind of fascinating record of being the movie to make the most money without ever being number one at the box office. Uh, And Oppenheimer also set the record for the highest grossing film set during World War II, though I kind of hesitate to truly call this a World War II movie. Uh, And on Rotten Tomatoes, the movie is uh, almost Christopher Nolan's best reviewed. It's at 93% with critics tied with Memento. The Dark Knight beats those both by just 1%. Uh, so this movie has a lot going for it, certainly from the critical side, from uh, you know the, the box office side. Um, here's what I pose to you first. Anytime a Christopher Nolan movie is coming to theaters, we uh, in the media often refer to it as the highly anticipated fill in the blank with the movie title. But something felt different about this one to me. Did did you feel that? And if so, what what do you attribute that to? Well, I mean, a large part of it, as you mentioned, is Barbenheimer. I mean, just the fact that these two movies were lumped together in a way that uh, made it feel like an event weekend. So yes, there's a lot of people that are super excited to see all Christopher Nolan movies. But the overlap between that and the people that were super excited to see Barbie, while a significant number were excited about both 
I think they fueled each other because all of a sudden it became, oh, I'm not just going to see one. Like maybe you're making a big deal about which one you went to see first. Like, oh, I'm a Barbie person or I'm an Oppenheimer person. (laughs) But a lot of people were like, I'm going to go see both either back to back or at least in the same weekend. And I think that that just gave it an energy uh, and, and an audience that it may not have found otherwise. And I actually think that that worked really well for this movie in particular, because if you list it out on paper, what this movie is about and what the trailers were like, Uh, I think that it maybe felt like it had less overlap with the Barbie audience. Mm -hmm. But when you actually watch this movie, it's a beautiful uh, character study uh, that is wrapped up in this like giant spectacle and obviously historical story. So I I think that worked really well for it. but But I do think that it was the Barbenheimer of it all that just turned it into rather than oh, I'm going to go see this Christopher Nolan movie to be like, oh, I'm participating in one of the biggest cultural moments of 2023. Huge cultural moment. Uh, I mean, we're still talking about it, of course. And I think it will be um, kind of a, a touchstone that for years to come, we will all collectively look back on that one weekend of of July 2023. Um, last episode, Joey and I chatted a bit about, uh, you know, the Golden Globes new category, which is called Cinematic and Box Office Achievement, which I liken to being their version of, uh, you know, how the Oscars tried doing that popular film category. Um, this one certainly meets all of the, the, the criteria, must have grossed over $150 million domestically, uh, with at least $100 million of that coming from the U.S., and or must obtain commensurate digital streaming viewership, which of course this was not streaming because Christopher Nolan would never do that. So this one's just fine. I I think it will get that nomination. Um, But the question I want to pose to you, Joey worries about a category like this that some voters may just look at and think like, oh yeah, we'll give it that one and nothing else. But I I can't imagine that would be the case for a movie like Oppenheimer at the Globes. Well, it's it's interesting because I think for better or worse, the Oscars and and the Globes to a slightly lesser degree have celebrated uh, kind of lower budget or mid budget movies a lot more than big budget movies. But that has become less and less the case over the years. Uh, and we could argue many different reasons why that's happening. <laughs> um, but uh, there's, I question the relevance of a category like this now. Because, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it would have been a great opportunity to get some titles in there that would have nominations in no other categories. Yeah. And now, because there aren't really a lot of mid-budget movies, there are super small indies, and there are these giant juggernaut budget films, and they're all kind of getting celebrated in the award space, I would say somewhat equally. And so I think that I question if the, these these categories are really as needed as these uh, award show mm-hmm. bodies are uh, feel that they are. Um, I think it's it's obviously a ploy to kind of get viewers that feel like awards programming is above them or or whatever or however they feel about or it irrelevant or to, to them yeah <laughs> right irrelevant to them so they're like oh yeah i'll do that because you nominated this so the star is coming i think that's happening enough i i mm-hmm. think that the ratings issues that these award shows face are actually not as tied to like who's showing up like yes if you're going to get the nfl has proven if you're going to get taylor swift to show up <laughs> yeah. people are going to yep. tune in so there is that <laughs> yep. but like you can invite them or like find ways that make them a presenter yeah. like I, I don't i don't think it's I don't think it's detrimental. I just don't think it's necessary. 
Yeah, that's all fair enough. Um, and look, I mean, I think this this movie is going to do just fine at the Oscars. Uh, current odds have both the movie and Christopher Nolan as the ones currently to beat for Best Picture and Director. Um, so here's the question I pose. How many total nominations do you think Oppenheimer will get at the Oscars and in which categories? Gosh, so I think it'll get a ton of technical awards uh, or at least nominations. Uh, I think it's got director, screenplay, movie. Thank you for keeping count over there for me. Um, uh, Best actor, probably. I mean, look, you could fill the whole supporting actor category with nominees from this movie, but Mm, I I would venture to guess at least one, but possibly maybe even two. And I think it's got a strong shot at supporting actress uh, as well for Emily Blunt. So uh, I don't know. You tell me. I think that was. I think that got to like ten. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, um, specifically the names ones you name, like seven, maybe eight, and then once we add in technical categories, I mean, there I think like production design and uh, sound, which plays such a huge role uh, in, in the way Christopher Nolan designed the movie. Um, and then of course there's editing, costumes. I wonder about uh, you know like hair, makeup, um, score stands. Perhaps a good chance. When you were talking about, you know, some of the supporting folks, uh, I mean, I think Robert Downey Jr. is it feels like, yes, for sure. But like Matt Damon is the one who he's he's, uh, you know, around like eight or nine right now. If we're looking at a top five uh, where some of the odds have him. Um, I loved him in this movie. Uh, and he plays, you know, just as important a role as Robert Downey Jr. And then for supporting actress, Florence Pugh is also an interesting one. She is much lower down in the odds, but such an important character. Yeah, she's she's great. She comes in not for very long, but for a very important specific reason. And I think she just knocks it out of the park. Yes, I mean, I would love to see her there. I, I, I think that, you know, as you mentioned, in terms of her rankings, uh, it's it's a dark horse nomination at this point. But I would lo- I mean, I, I think Florence Pugh deserves a nomination every year, even if she's not in a movie like she just does. <laughs> she does no wrong in my book. Yeah, I, I am right there with you. Big fan. Um, so, look, I mean, we're looking at, let's say, Matt and Florence do somehow get in. That could be upwards of 15 nominations, which would set a record. Being on the more realistic side, 12 or 13, I think we, we could be looking at. That is if hair and makeup and score and costumes all do get in there as well. Um, so it could be a very, very good year uh, for, for Oppenheimer. January, uh, when those nominations are made, they might have a lot to celebrate. So let's talk specifically uh, first about Christopher Nolan. Is it finally his time? Like, is is this his uh, best director Oscar to lose? Oh, man. I, I think so. I, I think it's tough. I mean, you know, while there's other contenders as well, I think both Oppenheimer and Barbie were incredibly hard stories to get right. Um, And I have, I honestly have issues with both movies. I, I don't think either movie is perfect. Um, And so, you know, I, but I think that they're both about the same percentage of perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's tough. I, I feel like um, it's, he's certainly in the, in the top, like, like a front runner. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say, Oh, I don't think it's his year. 
uh, I think it's going to be momentum. And I think, I think Oppenheimer ultimately will win more Oscars than Barbie will. Um, but man, I could see uh, all of the like big ticket yeah. awards going towards Barbie. And I think that that would dictate that perhaps Greta has the momentum there. Uh, it's tough. It's tough. It's, it's, it, I mean, you know, they're so different. I also just celebrate anytime a comedy gets rewarded in the award space because it is just as difficult to put together a good comedy as a good drama, if not more difficult. And so, I, you know, partially there's that for me too. It's like they have the extra uh, challenge of being a comedy and getting all of that right. Um, and again, I don't know that it gets it a hundred percent right, but pretty damn close. Oh yeah. And for all of the effort, the the commitment that, um, I mean, you look at what Ryan Gosling did. I mean, he just, uh, he, he absolutely killed it as Ken and Margot is just, uh, you know, the, the beating heart of the movie and Rhea Perlman as well. Uh, when she, you know, slides in for that incredible scene, um, at the end. Now see, that's, that's where, that's where you lose me with Barbie. I think, I think it's Rhea Perlman's best acting work ever. Um, but that aspect of the movie, I actually didn't love, but we're not talking about Barbie. I completely <laughs> understand that though. And yeah, I've, I've heard that from some others as well. Um, and of course, complicating that director category this year is that you have folks like Yorgos Lanthimos for, uh, poor things and Emerald Fennel for Saltburn and, uh, Martin Scorsese for Killers of the Flower Moon and Bradley Cooper for Maestro. It's, um, I think we've said it here the past couple of weeks on the podcast. This year is going to be absolutely incredible. These upcoming months um, for for the movies that are in store for audiences. I just uh, I can't wait for people to see so many of these. Well, I have to say, first of all, love uh, your undying passion for Saltburn, uh, and uh, I can't wait for other people to see it. To that, hopefully, they can join you on that train. Um, but the one thing I'll point out of everything you just listed is that normally we're just starting to see everything that's going to be part of the conversation. Uh, it is really interesting that there are these two big films and I will mention air as well. I know that's going to be a big push, uh, which came out way, way earlier in the year. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting to see these movies have legs in saying that they are actually the front runners when there's all these others that are coming in at seemingly quote unquote, the right moment. Uh, I think this is a year we're going to have, we're going to see that like prime Oscar release timing go out the window and everyone realize we're going to get a fair number of nominations from things that came out in, in, you know, the first half, if not slightly after the first half of the year. Exactly. Past Lives is also part of that conversation. We know uh, A24 knows exactly how to play their cards like they did last year with everything everywhere all at once. So I think uh, they're going to be very strategic with Past Lives. Um, And also, Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. Uh, it has so many fans in its corner. Uh, it was among our you know, favorite movies of the year so far of the first half of the year, and they are mounting a campaign for that as well. So I'm really curious to see where that one goes. Uh, I feel like they have a bit of an uphill battle, but also, I don't know, it's very beloved. So time will tell on that one. In terms of Oppenheimer, for Killian Murphy, this is his sixth time working with Christopher Nolan, uh, but all the previous times have been in supporting roles. This is the big one, though, the lead performance, and he is in almost every single frame of the movie. Um, what is it you ap- appreciate about his performance, and how do you think that will play into this season's campaign, which, by the way, also includes 
I've already mentioned him for director, but also star of Maestro Bradley Cooper, uh, Coleman Domingo and Rust, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio for Killers of the Flower Moon, Barry Keoghan for Saltburn, Paul Giamatti for The Holdovers, uh, several others I could rattle off. So I really, I fell in love with Killian watching Red Eye, uh, that amazing uh, suspense thriller movie. And I think one of the great things that he does is he can put out an incredibly quiet, quote unquote, performance that it is just all in the eyes. And I mean, those eyes, you could get lost in them uh, (laughs) because they're just so just dynamic uh beyond beyond being gorgeous they are just like they they tell a whole story yeah uh without him having to say anything and i thought that was really important for this character in particular because as uh as wordy as oppenheimer the script can be the, the character goes through a lot of stuff that's internal in a way that like isn't as showy as as some of these other uh potential nominees that you mentioned um have to be for their roles so I, I really appreciate that he gave just as dynamic a performance, even though like there's not necessarily as much like outward showing. He he was able to to really just do a lot with with silence um, and, and the many many words he had to, to say as well, of course. Right, right. But yeah, those those moments when he's not saying much, when he's when when Christopher Nolan has left you just to ponder what he is thinking and this kind of crisis he's going through this now moral crisis uh that's that's when i think sometimes the movie is at its most compelling uh in the midst of you know this enormous bomb <laughs> test uh and all of that um we we mentioned briefly a bit earlier emily blunt and robert downey jr um they are both ahead in the supporting categories but of course like we've been saying we have a long way to go still this season what do you think they need to do to keep the momentum going well, uh, the strike needs to end for many, There's many, many that. reasons. To go back to what we were just talking about, the most impressive thing about these movies remaining in the conversation is that they're able to do it without um, the actors being able to be out there and continuing to be part of the conversation. I do think that's going to be important, particularly for these supporting character nominations, that they do kind of remind people what uh, they did in these films because those categories I think are going to be even more crowded than, than lead. Um, So that's going to be important because uh, you know, it's, it's easy to get lost in the shuffle when there's more possible nominees. Um, But as long as they do that, I don't know how you deny them nomination. What's, what's amazing with what Christopher Nolan did in this movie is there are 9 billion and two characters. And yet it all feels like they each get a moment. I, I have a friend who's a playwright and he was an actor before becoming a playwright. And he said one of the most important things he does when he writes a piece, he makes sure that every part, be it a small supporting role that really only has a couple scenes or you know a lead role, that every single person has one moment that could be, again, he's a playwright, so I guess it's their Tony moment, but like could be their Oscar moment that like, okay, I might only have 15 lines, but there is this one little section that just like gives me a world to play. And I think that Oppenheimer did that. You know, you have Rami Malek and you're like, did he show up and just like stand in the background? And then all of a sudden he gets his big moment. And I felt (laughs) that way with Emily Blunt, where it was so much more uh, Florence Pugh's story 
when it came to uh, a female character in the movie in the beginning. And I was like, why did Emily say yes to this? And then all of a sudden you get to like her whole section and, and every single character got that. Uh, I think that that's one of the interesting things about Matt Damon is he's one of the few other than uh, Killian who I feel like actually didn't like just pop in and out. Like even Robert Downey Jr. because of the time jumping of it all kind of pops in and out. He's sustained there in a way um, that to your point, I hope he does get recognized as well because it's impressive how much of this movie he actually has to carry. Or maybe not carry. I won't say carry, but like that he at least helps carry. Facilitate, yeah, the, the that all of that action moving forward. Um, yeah, it's it, that's such a great point. This cast, uh, I think in those regards, uh, SAG ensemble nomination, uh, I would be shocked if they don't get it uh, because they're all just so, so good. Um, well, let's pause right there. We are going to hear from all of those folks, Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt, Robert Downey Jr., Matt Damon, and... Christopher Nolan, uh, coming up after this break, the awardist will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Peacock, presenting critically acclaimed originals for your Emmy consideration. Stream limited series Apples Never Fall, starring Annette Bening and Sam Neill, and The Tattooist of Auschwitz, based on the best-selling novel. Plus, TV movie Mr. Monk's Last Case, and the stop-motion animated In the Know, from Mike Judge, Brandon Gardner, and Zach Woods. Finally, head to the Highlands with Alan Cumming in the hit competition series The Trade. Peacock is your consideration destination this Emmy season. On June 14th, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your team, Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only beers June 14th. Get tickets now. Welcome back to The Awardist. Prior to the start of the SAG after a strike, Oppenheimer writer and director Christopher Nolan and stars Killian Murphy, who played J. Robert Oppenheimer, Emily Blunt, who played his wife, Kitty, Robert Downey Jr., who played Louis Strauss, a high-ranking member of the Atomic Energy Commission, and Matt Damon, who was General Leslie Groves, uh, that man who led the Manhattan Project. They all sat down for our Around the Table video series, and we are opening up the not-so-old archives to bring you that interview this week. Um, Patrick. Casual observation. Outside of the Dark Knight trilogy, have you ever noticed how all of Christopher Nolan's movies are one word? Following, Memento, Insomnia, The Prestige, Inception, Interstellar, Dunkirk, Tenet, and Oppenheimer. Like is, I, I don't know if I'm looking into something that's not there, but just an observation. Yeah, I had not noticed that prior to you uh, noticing it. Uh, But uh, I do think it's really interesting. And, you know, for a man who is not afraid of uh, runtime, um, (laughs) he certainly makes up for it in his movie titles. He does indeed. Maybe there's something he knows about, uh, you know, like movie marquees and posters going big with one word or something. I don't know. Just a thought. Anyway, so let's start with the man at the center of Nolan's latest movie, the so-called father of the atomic bomb, J. Robert Oppenheimer. We wondered how the filmmaker became interested in the physicist in the first place and why he decided to make a film about him. 
I mean, I, I first heard about Oppenheimer when I was a kid. Um, we were talking yesterday about that Sting song, Russians. Yeah. You know, yeah. refers to Oppenheimer's Deadly Toys. Yeah. Uh, I was growing up in the UK at a time when people were very concerned about nuclear armaments. You know, it was protests at Greenham Common, yeah. all of that, campaign for nuclear disarmament. And I think when I was 12 or 13, I think myself and all my friends were absolutely convinced that we were going to experience a nuclear war at some point in our lives. And then over time, that fear recedes, and, and Oppenheimer stuck with me as a figure. And I learned more about him over the years, including learning this information that you know, he, along with the key scientists of the Manhattan Project, they couldn't completely eliminate the possibility of uh, starting a chain reaction that would destroy the world. And for me, that, that was kind of the hook. It's, it's, it's such a dramatic moment. I referred to it in my last film, Tenet. Um, I'm just very interested in, in taking the audience into that room and being there and kind of living in that moment. Of what, what would that have been like to, to push that button, knowing there was any possibility of that? All right, so subject secured. Now, who to portray him and everyone else? We asked the cast to describe that phone call they got from the legendary director and what kind of questions they might have had for him. From the sounds of things, Nolan really courted Robert Downey Jr. Did you guys get the three dozen yellow roses two days in a row? <laughs> no? Oh. Mine was a slower courtship process because he knew for sure I was going to say yes no matter what. <laughs> to you? Um, well, well, Chris's way of operating is that he just calls you out of the blue. I think you enjoy that. Um, certainly for me, it, was, it just came completely out of the blue. And Emma called me and then put me on to Chris. And, and he, I had no idea. Like, I genuinely had no idea. And he said he was making a movie about Oppenheimer. And he said, I'd like, I'd like you to play Oppenheimer. And I had to sit down. And it was mm. kind of overwhelming. Which is a fun way to do it, but it means that in the future, it's very difficult for me to call you to go out to dinner or something. <laughs> <laughs> so here like, answer the phone. Is like, it? What's it going to be? <laughs> <laughs> I, this is uh, going to sound made up, but it's actually true. I had... Uh, not to get too personal, but had negotiated uh, extensively with my wife uh, that I was taking time off, and I actually was had enough foresight. Um, I had been in Interstellar, and then Chris put me on ice for a couple movies, so <laughs> I, I wasn't in the rotation. But I actually negotiated in couples therapy. This is a true story. The one caveat to my taking time off was if Chris Nolan called. And I, this is without knowing whether or not he was working on anything, because he never tells you. Like Killian, he just calls you out of the blue. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it, was a, it was a moment in my household. But, uh, so even <laughs> modern psychology has a caveat? For Chris. For Chris. <laughs> yeah. You heard it here first. Yeah. So that was how uh, I got the, I was very excited as well. I got. I went and met Chris in LA, and um, I didn't know the process, right? So I didn't know if you were meeting sort of countless other people. So it's it's a bit. So we talked for for an hour or so, and then he's just very casual, and he goes, so, you know, it's a part of um, his wife, and you know, would you like to take a look? Love you to take a look at it, and you're like, am I? Is this an offer? Am I? <laughs> So then I went into the living room and read the script. It was just so heart racing. It was so, so awesome. Uh, I, I, I went over to his house. I read it. Um, I don't want to complain, but it's on <laughs> red paper printed in black, which is 
kind of difficult. And a bit best. unnerving as well. Yeah. Um, I guess there's something about it that makes it that you forget it as soon as you read it. I don't know what those colors are. <laughs> anyway, it, it's that thing. You read the script. It's written in the first person. You're transported. And it's a journey to read it. And then at the end of that, the guy who wrote the script you just read is asking you if you want to do it. It's kind of like being hypnotized. This is how you. This is how you get what you want. <laughs> I actually had a little bit. I, I I was so blown away by the script. Um, again, as Robert says it's in the first person, which I'd never seen before. So rather than say Oppenheimer crosses the room, it says I walk across the room in, in the present tense. So it's, it has that. It it, it 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 has a visceral effect on you, and it pulls you right in. And which is the point? He's trying to tell his readers. A.K.A. just us and his crew. This is the feeling of the movie. It's got to go through the subjective lens of this character, and that's what it, it entirely rests on. That, and I was so kind of floored by how good it was um, that the only thing I said, he said, "What do you think?" And I said, "I have no notes." So snobby. Which to me <laughs> so is snobby. it's the highest compliment no, you can it's a pay. Terrible. And Chris was so when, thing to say. when Emily read it and M, M was gushing about it and she was very articulate. Chris said, "Well, it's better than what Matt said." <laughs> <laughs> but I was trying, I didn't, I was, you know, because you're, you're no a little notes. stunned when yep. you go, I, ha, I, I have no notes. I, I, don't, I don't know what to say to you. I, I can't believe, this is amazing. Um, which is, you know, how I felt watching the film as well. Well, probably no surprise to Damon, who worked with Nolan on 2014's Interstellar, or Murphy, who has appeared in five other Nolan movies. But Oppenheimer was a first for Blunt and Downey, who explain what had them most excited about joining the cast. I mean, I knew Killian from Quiet Place 2, so of course I called him and I said, like, what's it like? Come on, tell me. And he just said, you're going to just love it. You're going to love it. It's so focused. There's no chaos. It's very giving. It's collaborative. And, and how amazing he was with actors. And I think that is the great beauty of what Chris does, is that there are directors who are led by the visuals, or there's directors who are pretty good with actors, but you just never find that, where someone is just sort of as mirroredly brilliant at both. And... So I was excited about the focus of it. I think I was excited about the screws getting tightened on everybody and what that atmosphere will feel like on a film set. It's also the other thing he gives you is that you feel safe. And I think usually you're on a film set where you might not like the script that much or you just kind of don't really trust that scene or that note or that thing. And there's none of that. All of that just gets kind of washed away. And it gives everyone wings on their heels. You know, it just makes people perform at a level that we're trying to kind of match what Chris does and yeah the screws tightening that's the feeling I loved so much yeah there's a difference between organized focused and controlled and I think all of us can say we've worked with a director or 17 in the past that may <laughs> confuse those mm -hmm. and it's about control and I never saw a mark on the floor I was never told what to do or not do. I was more than occasionally asked to do nothing, which is a really <laughs> interesting <laughs> bit of feedback because I think there's still some part mm -hmm. of me that wants to please the director by doing something. Mm. And I think also you knew because of how rich the format is, how much of the work was going to be done. So it really was a trust exercise in letting the story, the text. And I mean, you know, 
all of us are blessed that we had scenes with That's someone good. who was in, so, you guys were in a zone together, mm. given the history you had that was so fascinating as to this holy monastic grind you guys were in. Mm -hmm. But you were kind throughout, so you go like, I have nothing to complain about here. This is really weird. <laughs> What's this feeling of peace? <laughs> Well, while things were casual and peaceful behind the scenes, what played out on the very big screens where Oppenheimer played is, of course, the tense atomic bomb test in the New Mexico desert. Would it work? Would the hundreds of people who were part of the so-called Manhattan Project survive the detonation? Could it have a global impact? Plenty of things to worry about. Nolan, of course, had his own in recreating the Trinity test. I mean, we always knew that the Trinity test would have to be a showstopper. You know, it's, it's the fulcrum that the, the whole story turns on. And I, when I finished the script, one of the first people I, I showed the script to was my visual effects supervisor, because I wanted to take CG off the table and see if, you know, he could come up with real-world methodologies for producing the effect of, you know, the first atomic blast. But even more than that, I wanted him to see how we were going to try and look into Oppenheimer's mind and, and see his thought process of, you know, as I put it, sort of looking into dull matter and, and seeing energy there and, and seeing the potential of the strong force there to be, to be unleashed on the world and, and sort of draw that thread with symbolic imagery and visualizations of the quantum world and everything. So Andrew Jackson, I've worked with for, for several films. Um, he won an Oscar for Tenet. Um, I've worked with him for years and he understands both the computer world, but he also understands the analog world. He's, he's wonderful with that. And so he spent months and months and months doing all these experiments and figuring out all these methods, some very, very small and microscopic, some of them absolutely colossal. Um, and then the process of going out to the desert, you know, with Ruth de Jong building the bunkers as they would have been so that we could shoot in the middle of the night, in the desert, in the real places, and, and get these guys there to, to really experience some measure of what that tension would have been like that crazy night, sort of building up, and the weeks before building up, worrying about the weather. We're very fortunate the weather did all the things we needed it to do. It got crazy on when cue. we needed to get crazy. Yeah. On cue. <laughs> on cue, it was really... It was, it was really yeah. wonderful. Was it happens for you a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I'm rumoured to be lucky with weather. I, I think we make our own luck, though, because we we always shoot, no matter what the weather. Yeah. We yeah. don't stop, we don't wait. You know, I mean, mm. on Interstellar, we, they kicked us off the glacier finally, and <laughs> we shot in the car park, you know. <laughs> and the shot, which you said wouldn't be in the film, no, is actually... It's in the, the movie, film. you were right. You were right. <laughs> and, uh, but that's the thing, is, is you know, we're always prepared to try and use what what nature gives us give us a real texture and in the case of the new mexico desert it it just paid such dividends i mean mm -hmm. that weather that came in you know as you guys are doing the scene by the wooden wall with the initial test detonation and, and yeah. we had to suddenly wrap because lightning came over but the the clouds that came over i mean all of it just informs the whole you know the whole drama of the piece and the the build-up to, to trinity is the key it's really all about the tension leading up to it and what the process that they went through. And I was very blessed that the, the designer, Ruth de Jong, and Scott Fisher, the visual effects supervisor, you know, when we were trying to make our budget work and, and all that, it's sort of like, well, what do you need to see of the gadget itself? And I was like, well, we only see it in these shots and those shots. And they ignored that completely from me and they built the entire thing in exacting detail so that we were then free to shoot the entire process you know the shrink wrapping on it as it comes up in the truck that gets cut off and 
the way that the, the different modules are inserted and are wired up. And we were able to build the tension yeah. up to the detonation by showing that process that, that they went through. And I think it's so important. And, and that's what you get. I mean, you know, obviously with wonderful actors coming on and bringing, uh, you know, new takes, new thoughts, new research to everything, particularly dealing with, with real people. But I had that from every department. I had that from... Um, you know, from Ruth and from Hoyter, the director of photography, everybody coming with ideas and knowledge about how this could work better. And that, that sequence is built on, on those building blocks. A true collaboration right there and group effort. As for the cast, there were many scenes that Blunt, Downey, and Damon weren't part of, so they got to see all of Murphy's work when Nolan showed them the movie. But even Murphy, who was there for pretty much all of it, recalled being, no pun intended, blown away by the final product. This is a peculiar way that Chris works. You don't see a frame of the film while you're shooting. There's no video village, there's no monitors, there's no playback, um, which is weirdly liberating. You know, you, yeah. you're, you're never reflecting, you're just moving forwards all, all, the, all the time. So <laughs> I haven't seen a frame of the film except for that little teaser that you guys put out. Mm -hmm. and, then we, and then I saw the movie. And um, how do I kind of phrase this properly? Uh, it was absolutely staggering I, I found it absolutely staggering and, and it was I was like it was like I was kind of uh, emotionally winded you know I mean it's 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 not great looking at yourself but you can get over that when the film is as brilliantly constructed and made as this as this film is and and I remember we just talked and talked for hours after after it and it seems that that everyone who's watching the film it kind of provokes that very very intense mm. debate among people that have have seen it because the the themes that it's interrogating are just the biggest themes of of, of, of all, you, you, you know. And it's and it's and it's as as Matt said, like it's so visceral and, and it it kind of grabs you by the throat and just you just you're just in it for uh, for, for the whole run. Yeah, I was a little over, overwhelmed. Uh, still recovering. <laughs> <laughs> there's English modesty, and then there's. Irish Killian. <laughs> it's been really difficult to try to get through to you what an amazing thing you accomplished. And I know it's important for us to kind of separate from that because that's not what matters. But um, well done, brother. Thanks, man. We all did it. We, all we did. did. No, yeah. don't, don't. We did. But no, but from the, from the outset, the very first thing Chris said to me when he talked to me about it was... You know, the book that it's based on is an amazing book. It won the Pulitzer Prize. It's called American Prometheus. And Chris said, I'm not calling the movie that. I'm calling it Oppenheimer because that's what this is. And this thing rides on that character, on him, on that performance. And I need actors in support of that. That's the, the mission. And that, those were kind of our marching orders. And so watching the two of them, really, because I do think of it as a partnership, when you're... When you're putting something of this scale on the back of one performance, um, you're, you, the director and actor have to be in complete sync and have to, it has to be a partnership. Killian, Chris has to put the camera in the right place and Killian's got to, you know what I mean? It's like it, they both have to be working in concert and that's, that was what was really fun to watch. And to your point of, of us coming kind of in and out, you know, because we, we're in a lot of the movie, but it's a, 
you know, there's a lot of movie that that we're not in. It was it was it was great to parachute in and watch that as as Robert says, this kind of holy monastic mm-hmm. kind of. Uh, um, mission that these two were on together, and to and to and to bear witness to it, because it really is one of the great screen performances, yes. I think, of all time. Yes. Ron, your last day, you took me aside and, and said, "You realize what this guy's doing every day is killing for you, but with good humor." And do you understand how exhausting that is, how difficult it is? And you mustn't take that for granted. And I thought about that. And I was like, no, nah, he loves it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, Truer yeah. words will not be smart. Not sure if you can tell, but it seems like they all really got along making this movie. So most stories about the atomic bomb focus on the actual war, not so much the creation of the warhead. So we wonder what Nolan and Murphy were most surprised to learn about the man at the center of this story. Here's Nolan first. I knew a bit about Oppenheimer going in, and, and I maintain, I've talked a lot to, to journalists over the last couple of days, that people who know nothing about Oppenheimer are going to get the most out of the film, I think. Um, when I read American Prometheus, you know, we just started to discover all of these stranger-than-fiction aspects to his story and the, the complexities of it. And there were things that you just would never put in a script as, as a writer of fiction. It w- wouldn't be credible. Um, but the real story has those kind of extraordinary moments. Um, but what we talked about right from the beginning is, is not an impersonation. Yeah. We're not making a documentary. Yeah. Our responsibility was to interpret and, and mm. to produce our interpretation of the character and, and of, of the events. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, and like when you think about what he lived through, the, the, the journey of his, the story of his life, it's kind of staggering. It was this kind of... This mad kind of confluence of like, you know, politics and science and war it was the most exciting and terrifying time to kind of live through. And, and it, the story of his life is is fascinating. That's obviously why you thought it would merit a movie. Yeah, and I think the connection. I mean, the, one of the first things I grabbed a hold of from the book as I was reading it the first time was the moment you realised that Los Alamos, you know, which would become so important in history is just this place that he and his brother like to go camping. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that connection, the personal with, yeah. with the historic, uh, I thought was, was really engaging. Yeah. Well, as the cast offered their interpretations of the characters, they say they constantly found themselves impressed by their co-stars. Every day with Killian, I would start, I would preface it by saying that, I was just marveling at what he was doing and, and not doing and, um, at, and all of it. And then, and then I, I was very genuinely surprised, like, with uh, Jason Clark, who plays uh, oh. Roger Robb. The first time I sat in that room and was cross-examined by him, and he, he, he just started... He's so and the, lethal. He, yeah. Lethal is the lethal. perfect word. He's fantastic and... Intimidating. And intimidating. And it was just, way. it was great. And I looked at him and I went, okay, this is... You know, and I completely out. I'm, I'm, I'm a general. I wasn't worried about him at all. But, <laughs> but, but I looked at him and went, "This, this is, you know." And that was the thing: is that every actor goes there very prepared, very, I think, excited, probably a little nervous to be working with Chris. And and um, and and you feel it when you walk on the set. You feel it through throughout every department. And um, you know, it's like this is the place, and you're at it. And yeah. um, and that's really exciting. I mean, I had so much with Killian, who was so transporting to be in a scene with and just pulls you right inside of it, you know, whatever the scene is. Um, 
He can take a slap, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> 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 yeah. I mean, I really didn't want to hit him, you know, and Chris was like, hit him, He's, he'll, he'll be fine. And I can see this, his rather famous cheekbone just sort of start to grow, like even more on one side by the end. Um, but but that, that scene I really enjoyed um, where it's a really difficult scene for Killian to play, you know, where he's literally sort of gibbering with incoherence and he's having an episode and it was just so raw and emotional and it was one of those days where sort of, I, I think we were losing the light and yeah. it was like, but Chris doesn't kind of let you feel the chaos, but I think we knew, you know, that we had to get it and it was just a very heated, exciting scene and to see this great man, this powerful man, so delicate, so vulnerable, it's just the full spectrum of what Killian can do, you know. And can I just say, like, within that scene in particular, I think, I don't know if I'd been able to get to that place, if, you know, if it wasn't for working with Emily, because you, you need that level of trust for a scene like that, you know. And I think the fact that we know each other and she's such a, like, phenomenal actor, that we were able to, to go there, you know. And I think the trust, you know, with Chris and trust with Emily. Mm -hmm. And in terms of, for me, like, every day I was working with the best actors in the world, you know, every, every, every single day. And, you know, you look at the call sheet, and it would be like Gary Oldman one day and then Ken yeah. Branagh and then these guys, you know, it was, you know, you, you, it's very hard to be cynical when you're working with that level of, <laughs> of, of talent. So every day. Nolan and Murphy were also quick to praise Florence Pugh, who has a small but very important role in the film as a psychiatrist who Oppenheimer has an affair with. Working with Florence was amazing. I mean, I, I'd followed her, her work uh, over the last few years. I was really excited to work with her and had no idea what that would be like. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I think she's just a wonderful presence. And yeah. I feel like you guys connected immediately. I, right think, away, yeah. I think I did with her as well. Uh, I just found her to be extraordinarily, well, very professional, but what a talent. I mean, what a presence. So, so yeah, it's her presence. She has this incredible mm. presence on screen and, and in person. Super um, charismatic. Yeah, Super so charismatic. charismatic. And a very tough, tough role. Yeah. Very precise. Yes. The screen time, yeah. short, but so important in Oppenheimer's life. I mean, just really the, the root of so many things that then happened in his life yeah. later on. The four of us were sitting around last night, the actors here, and Robert said, you know, apropos of nothing, he said, you know, this next generation coming behind us is really good. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, and she's, she's leading that, that group. Yeah. She's really, really great. So for all of the research and writing and planning and casting, we couldn't help but wonder if there was a moment that surprised Nolan, something that even he couldn't have orchestrated himself. I think for me, one of the more invigorating sequences is the GAC meeting where Louis Strauss you know, calls the meeting, comes late at night. And then we did a lot of improvisations That's with right. that, with Dane DeHaan and Matthew Modine and everyone. Yeah. And I don't know if you remember where we got Dane to just go very over the top yeah. to, to prompt a discussion and prompt yeah. a different set of directions in it. And that was a really, uh, really interesting scene to watch everybody contribute something, uh, you know, from Josh Hartnett to Matthew Modine to Dane DeHaan to these guys just bringing something literally to the table in that scene scene around there. I, I really, really enjoyed the, that sequence. Uh, present company excluded most every scene I had was with Alden Ehrenreich and Scott mm -hmm. Grimes and Alden and I literally, because you put us at close quarters, we're kind of like good friends now and stayed in mm -hmm. touch and it's always great when that happens. Um, and then in watching the film, uh, I was 
just re-reminded of how good Casey Affleck is. Okay. I was yeah. like, yeah. that may be one of the coolest yeah. couple scenes I've seen in a decade. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, uh, Rami Malek comes in for one day, and it was an absolute mic drop moment. So yeah. it almost transcends this sense of we're making each other better because the competition, it was almost like you were participating in and watching three generations of actors all come in kind of and almost like with a summer stock level of hey let's let's there's a barn let's make a show and let's do it for maestro well i think they all liked working with christopher nolan uh certainly high praise (laughs) there yeah high praise for their director but understandable i mean look they this is a guy you have to trust he has a big vision um but you know i i think you're in good hands when you're working with christopher nolan yeah well I, i that's one of the things i really appreciated about this entire cast conversation was mm-hmm. how much they weren't just diving into their characters and what they had to bring to the movie, but how much they were really celebrating each other. Even those that weren't yeah. there. I, <laughs> I just, again, you and I have already professed our love of Florence Pugh, but uh, I, I really was touched um, everything that they were saying about her and how she's kind of leading this next generation yeah. of actors. Uh, and I also think it's really interesting. Um, obviously Robert Downey Jr. was one of the leaders of the previous phases of, Marvel. Uh, and, and at least theoretically Florence could be one of those, uh, for this next phase. Uh, and so I I think there's a really great passing of the torch there in many Mm -hmm. ways, um, from Robert to Florence. Um, and I, that just really, I really appreciated that again, you know, um, acting, the nature of acting is getting really into your head and, and making sure that you're going through your own process to put out the best product possible. Um, but I really appreciate how, and, and give, credit to Christopher, because of course he must have fostered this um, environment for them to really feel comfortable celebrating each other and really looking at it as an ensemble piece. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so whether that was just casting the right people that all had that mentality coming in or fostering it while uh, filming, uh, that really came through, not just in the movie, but in this conversation. Indeed. Could not have said it better myself. I mean, look, you know, and certainly their praise for Killian Murphy, you know, we know how long this movie is. uh, And that made it a longer shoot. And, and he was there for all of it. So, um, they, they, they call out his modesty, you know, <laughs> one or two times there, uh, you know, trying to take the attention off of himself and everything he had to do. But, uh, he, he certainly deserves all of the, uh, the accolades and praise. Cause he's just, uh, just, a, it's a phenomenal performance here. Um, and I think one that, that people will look back on for, for many years to come for sure. Uh, well, th- with all of that said, that is it for this episode of The Awardist. Patrick, thanks for being here. Uh, I mean, I will be a substitute for Joey Nolfi anytime. Uh, well, we'll have you on together very soon. Uh, and thanks so much to all of you for listening. If you like what you're hearing here on The Awardist, follow, rate the podcast, and leave us an award-winning review on Apple Podcasts. And to keep the conversation with us going, you can follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials. We're at EW on X, formerly known as Twitter, and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag me at Jared Hall. We will see you back here next week on The Awardist and every day at EW.com. This episode of The Awardist is hosted and produced by Jared Hall and produced and edited by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening.